0: Welcome to the Leading by History podcast, where we're on a constant journey with our listeners, walking and talking our way through history, and highlighting information which is most crucial for changing our world one episode at a time. Come along for the journey with your host, Dr. Masayahu Isra'ul. We look forward to you getting to know us better. Leading by History. Welcome back to another episode of the Leading by History podcast. I'm your host, Masayahu Isra'ol. It is indeed a privilege and a pleasure to be back again for season five, season five. And we started off our season with a wonderful conversation with Dr. Henley and the Sarah Rector story. And now... We are following up with a wonderful guest, Dr. Rachel McMillan, and I want to tell you a little bit about our guest. Dr. McMillan is an assistant professor of curriculum instruction at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And she's a curriculum theorist and educational researcher and works and explores in two intersecting areas of Black education and critical prison studies. And I am so excited to have Dr. McMillan with us today on Leading by History. Dr. McMillan, welcome to the Leading by History show.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Yes, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. I was able to reach out to you. I'd seen some of the work that you were doing with those who are incarcerated and ensuring that they have a space where they can amplify their voice and because we've had previous guests on our show that have talked about the school to prison pipeline and the educational system within the prison sector, I thought this was a wonderful conversation to come and have with you for season five. So I want to talk a little bit with you about, you know, our show is going to be called The Imprisoned Black Radical Tradition. The imprisoned Black radical tradition. Before we get started into the depth of that content, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, where are you from? Uh, where did you grow up? And how did you get involved in education?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, born and raised. I grew up, you know, in the city and, and in the suburbs. I got my degree in history and black studies, got my bachelor's and then ended up getting my master's in social studies education because I wanted to, I wanted to be a history teacher, you Mm -hmm. know, I thought social studies was only history at the time, Mm. but yeah, so I, once I got my master's, I started teaching in Cincinnati public schools, you know, predominantly black schools, um, most of my career. And yeah, so that was just my, you know, my journey to education. My mom's a teacher um and that you know heavily influenced my decision to become a teacher my dad's a pastor which is Mm -hmm. also you know a form of teaching so that also um influenced me so so yeah
0: Okay. So what is your area of scholarship? I talked a little bit about in the introduction, the two intersections, but what do you focus on in Black education specifically? And what kinds of things in critical prison studies? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: So I focus mainly on Black urban education. Um, being a, a high school social studies teacher, um, you know, I, I became I don't want to say I became interested in it, but my views on incarceration changed um, mm-hmm. as I became, or as I was teaching. Um, I'm somebody who uh, is directly impacted by incarceration, so I've had, you know, family mem- family members um, be incarcerated, and I've, you know, over my lifetime seen, you know, people disappear and and reappear, and um, never really thoroughly questioned that or never really thought about incarceration um just growing up you you think okay somebody did something bad and so that is where they go when they do something you know quote unquote bad so uh, i really started thinking about it differently like i said when i was teaching high school and i was seeing you know some of my students disappear and and reappear and you know i had to be the one in in contact with probation officers and you know I, i was doing all of this stuff within this you know, school prison nexus. And it, it just kind of hit me like, oh, I've always had this relationship, you know, to incarceration, but never really thought about it. And so, you know, as I was teaching, my my students kind of led the way and they, they started becoming interested in, you know, this issue of wrongful incarceration. And they worked with the Ohio Innocence Project. Um, they worked with the Ohio Justice and Policy Center, which are, you know, groups or organizations that focus on um, freeing people who you know, claim wrongful incarceration or wrongful imprisonment. And so as my students um, began doing these projects, um, I started you know, inviting um, formerly incarcerated people into my classroom um, to work alongside my students and, and to teach my students to become, to become their teachers. And during the pandemic, I actually started a book club with someone who is currently incarcerated on death row and that was my my first, I guess, work with somebody currently incarcerated. And he became a teacher of my students as well. And so it's no like clear, like linear path that I took, you know, to this work, but that is how I became, you know, involved, you know, working with people who had experienced incarceration. And so my my scholarship really tends to focus on. Black people who were incarcerated as youth, so at very young ages, you know, 16, 17 years old, and who were, you know, sentenced to life uh, without the possibility of parole. And so many of the people that I work with, you know, have been incarcerated for 20 plus years, 30 plus years, and I work with them in um, creating curriculum. Around their experiences of incarceration, um, their self-education in prison, you know, what they've learned about living, how do they live, you know, even in this place of what is called social death. And so that that's my that's my main work, you know, the intersection of black education and critical prison studies is, you know, really thinking about education, not not so much the you know, the institutional idea of prison education. I'm much more interested in the self-education that that people go through when they are you know alone by themselves in a cell and then how do i translate that for students who you know who look like me and who look like you know many of the people who are incarcerated
0: and when you talk about translating that for students what does that look like when, you, when you're looking at these autodidactic people in prison who are self learners um Mm -hmm. what are you pulling from that what are you gleaning from that for your students how what does that look like
1: so a lot of a lot of people when they hear about the work that i do they tend to think more of like a scared straight kind of you Mm -hmm. know thing like um i'm using these stories to to tell students what not to do you know like or you'll end up in this place that kind of thing but that's not what i'm interested in like at all um I actually, you know, steer clear away from that kind of uh, thinking. What I'm interested in is, you know, like I like I said, this self education. So, what are they what are they gravitating towards, you know, while they are incarcerated? So, what are they what are they reading? Who are they reading? Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the texts that they that they pull from the the artistic things that they create. I'm interested in how do you live. You are faced with death, whether it's the death penalty or life without the possibility of parole, um, which is, you know, death by incarceration. My interest is, okay, how do you live? And then it's telling students, okay, this is how you live. Even when we are faced with death, you know, as as Black people are um, in America, no matter where you turn, um, we are faced with death. I just want to show my students, this is how you live.
0: So do you think that that transforms into some kind of survival reflex that they develop over time, that if they find themselves in challenging situations, they would know how to survive. Thinking about that practical application, like, all right, I'm learning about what people in prison are doing and how they're learning, I can see that taken into students thinking about how they can overcome obstacles and being able to, in challenging situations, continue to better themselves and further their own education. I mean, for example, if a student doesn't get that financial aid, if they're Mm -hmm. unable to earn that scholarship, do they give up and say, forget it, that's it for education for me? Because mm. now I don't have the financial means to learn or do they extract from what you have been working with them with learning about in the in the prison industrial complex, how folks have had everything taken away from them, but they still found ways to grow mm. themselves. Am I somewhere in the in the realm of possibility? Yeah, I, I
1: think it's yeah, I think it's more the latter. And and my students, you know, if they were if they were sitting right here, they would they would tell you that what they have learned is is very much that, you know, Mm -hmm. that when people have everything taken away from them, as our ancestors had, you know, during enslavement, what do we do to create spaces and places for ourselves to educate ourselves, to love ourselves, to live, to be in community with each other? That is what my students are learning, you know, from people Mm -hmm. who are incarcerated, you know, that when they when they speak to people who are incarcerated or who've experienced incarceration, you know, there there are always stories of, you know, family members who, you know, no longer call or, you know, no mm. longer have contact with them or deaths that, that they've experienced or brutal attacks that they've seen or, you know, just utter feelings of like loneliness, mm. you know, through all of that, there's still this life. That I want to tap into, and I want my students to tap into. You know, we have these ideas of of incarceration and people who are incarcerated as being, you know, complete victims and you know not having agency. And so, I, I want my students to see that that's not true. That there is agency inside these places. That that people are, you know, creating their own families in there when you know when they can no longer contact people outside, that they are educating themselves and also educating other people inside, that they are creating ways of living that allow them to thrive and not just survive. Mm. And so that's what I want my students to know. Mm.
0: Yeah. That reminds me of of a text. We want to do more than
1: survive. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Love, that's my mentor. Yeah. So yeah, I stole okay. that from her. <laughs>
0: Okay. Yes. So this makes me think about as we get into this a little bit, I think about when we talk about these autodidacts, when we talk about these folks who are self-learners, self-educated, I can't help but talk about one of the the greatest prison stories of self-education that I was exposed to as a young man, which was that of El Haj Malik Shabazz, Malcolm X, right? Malcolm X, was to me the quintessential representation of the self-learner. You know, once he received a knowledge of self, as it has been called, he started with the dictionary and understanding every word in the dictionary, as we saw in the movie, aardvark, and moving all the way forward, right? Because you can't do battle in the language of an oppressor if you don't mm-hmm. understand the language of the oppressor. Tell me about in your interactions with folks that are on the inside, are many of them influenced by el Malik, Sh- El-Shabazz, Malcolm X? Yeah. Are they influenced by his story? Do they bring to the surface his experiences? You know, what's his role in, in what you've seen in your interaction?
1: Every single one of them talks about Malcolm X. Like that's, mm-hmm that's the starting point i think for for a lot of them and it's something that you know when i when i asked them you know about important texts that they would want to share with with young people that's the first book that they mentioned which is to me uh reading that book when i was in high school was very foundational to you know how i how I operated, how I understood history, and how I thought of myself—you know—as an educator. It's not a book that you know you'll see many high school students reading now. But that is the thing: like when you are when you're working with people incarcerated and you're talking about self-education, a lot of the texts that they that they point to, a lot of the history texts, a lot of the texts that have great meaning in their life, you won't see in schools. For me, it's a matter of okay, how do we how do we take those you know those teachings from Malcolm X or from George Jackson or from Angela Davis and put them you know in the hands of high schoolers? Um, yeah. And so that's my whole thing you know creating this curriculum, pointing to those I don't want to say poor fathers, but leading figures, I guess like Malcolm X pointing to those people as guides for young learners
0: mm. you mentioned George L. Jackson, right. Mm-hmm blood in my eye mm-hmm. it's something because i growing up being a consumer of hip-hop music these are names that would come up during my era of mm-hmm. hip-hop mm-hmm. these are the names that came up in the music el-haj malik shabazz malcolm x mm-hmm. george jackson i think i remember a song by Razkaz where we he, he talked about blood in my eye and and then hearing about kwame toure yeah. And just all of the great revolutionary thinkers, Fred Hampton, right? Mm-hmm. So again, tell me, what are those who are incarcerated that you work with? What are they saying about George Jackson? Is this another name that comes up? Are they drawing inspiration from George Jackson? And what are they saying about him?
1: Um, yeah, it's... Once again, uh, just like with Malcolm X, it, they're always pointing to, to George Jackson as somebody who, you know, greatly influenced their thought, um, their ideas about incarceration, their ideas about, like I mentioned earlier, like thriving even while incarcerated. But it's also one of one of the texts that is banned in a, in a lot of prisons. Mm-hmm. Um And uh, I primarily work with men who are incarcerated. I work with uh, both men and women, but mainly men who are incarcerated. And this is a text that not smuggled in, but you Mm. know, it's yeah. I guess it it would be kind of smuggled, right? (laughs) I mean, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: No, keep it keep it real. So, (laughs) so what have you heard with regard to you know blood in my eye and the writings of Jackson? Uh, What do you think has made that taboo? within the prison system. I know he talks about things like guerrilla warfare against the United States. He's got a heavy Mm -hmm. Maoist, Fanonist, Leninist, Marxist kind of perspective to a lot Mm -hmm. of his work. But, hey, those things are in a lot of the readings, right, of folk. Mm -hmm. They're all Mm -hmm. influenced by these. Has there been any indication for you of why this text is is something that is not easily accessible,
1: yeah. um I mean, he's a black radical, you know, mm-hmm. through and through. And what I have seen um working with you know people who are incarcerated, um, you know, most of the people that i that I work with would you know, consider themselves black radicals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what george jackson is is teaching us in you know, Soledad brother or blood in my eye um is is this way of viewing the world as as a black radical um every word that that he says um you know is to me it you know it caused me to look at the state you know, you know differently um and so it's really this this educational text and the reason that it is his work is banned you know in a lot of these places is because they don't want us to be educated. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that's you know that's simple. They don't want us to to know these things. They don't want us to know about George Jackson, and you know what was done to him and how he resisted. They don't want us to know that. And you know that comes back to um, what I was saying about the institutionalization of prison education programs. If you if you look at the history of you know colleges in prison, while there is some good. From it, a lot of these programs were started because Black men were educating themselves, mm-hmm. um, and so the the state now, you know, has to intervene and um, capitalism, and and all of that is it's all tied up in these uh, college, and prison programs and prison education um, programs, and so I, I think that you know at the root of it all, the reason why they don't want you know this text in there is because like I said, he's a black radical and we can't think
0: that way. Yeah. You know, I just had on the screen there a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, from the, you know, African-American history, intellectual society had a a piece called George Jackson, dragon philosopher and revolutionary abolitionist. And there's an image of him right there. And Mm -hmm. of, of course his, his, uh, A seminal text, the Soledad brother is definitely another classic there. But, you know, when you think about someone calling for international revolutionary struggle from a prison cell, that's pretty significant in of Mm -hmm. itself. Right. What is causing this kind of perspective? And there's something that's happening within the prison industrial complex and has been going on for quite some time. That causes people's political ideologies to start shifting when they mm-hmm. suffer the outlandish abuses of of prison. I think it was recently this week. I think the Mississippi mm-hmm. prison, Alabama, System, Alabama. Okay, thank mm-hmm. you. Um, yeah. Was was brought brought to bear for its inhumane treatment of of its folks, and I, you know, and that's one thing that we definitely want the young folks to understand. Is that that's not a place that you want to be. You know, you Mm -hmm. you don't want to be locked up in a cell. Uh, They try Mm -hmm. to sell it to you in some of the music that this is you. You get your stripes and you're going to be well respected when you get out. It's really if you get out, because, Mm -hmm. you know, another piece really important for us to understand is, I mean, Rikers Island, Mm -hmm. you know, Rikers Island is like a living hell. And it was worse even in the 1980s and the 90s. And a lot of those dudes are getting out now after having served 30 years in the prison system. They've they've served their... You know, some of them, they're 25 to life, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, some of them are coming home now. And and I've watched over the last few years, as many of them, the leaders of the Latin Kings, the Bloods, other prison organizations, how they've come home, gotten caught up in social media and all of the hype that's involved. And And mm-hmm. many of them are back in prison again or have been killed in the streets mm-hmm. and You think about folks who have been institutionalized to such a degree that when they come out into the free world, their mind is still inside. So many of the brothers that I have known have talked about how they continue to sleep on the floor. Because it was more comparable to the hard cots and the stone slabs that they were sleeping Mm -hmm. on inside. They still will cook a spread up as opposed to, you know, engaging in some really fine dining that may be better for your health. The workout program and running their programming. A lot of them have really struggled with getting out and now attempting to engage in this world. And that's one of the things that I think also that I wanna tap into in a moment is really talking about how the prison industrial complex has really set folks up for failure. As a listener to the Leading by History podcast, we wanna thank you for being a part of this learning community. Without you, there is no us. Consider supporting Leading by History today by three simple steps. One, sharing our podcast two, visiting our website at leadingbyhistory.com, and three, making a donation at Patreon backslash leadingbyhistory. Whichever you choose, know that your support goes a long way in helping us to provide the high-quality programming you've come to expect from us. Thank you sincerely as you support our program and continue to lead by history. So what are your thoughts about the prison industrial complex and how it prepares the incarcerated to live full lives when and if they're able to return home to society? What are you hearing from the inside? What are the cries, even of those who may not be coming home? Is anyone attempting to help them reform other than themselves?
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's a question that could be answered in many ways. Um, You know, I've, I've worked, I've worked closely with, you know, people inside and, um, but most of my, I would say maybe the past seven years has been with uh, formerly incarcerated people, you know, coming out. Um, And, you know, I've, I've worked closely with them and I, I've become, you know, wonderful friends with them um, to the point where they, you know, they keep it, keeping a hundred with me and um, tell me, you know, everything that they are experiencing, you know, coming out. Um, and I have a, a close friend who, who told me, he so, said, you know, some of the, the worst prisons are, are those without bars. Mm. And many of them, you know, come out, not having access to education or not having access to not even being able to self-educate, you know, in in many of these situations. And so they come out, you know, needing those services, needing um, psychological support. A lot of them Mm. have PTSD um, from what they've experienced. They come out, many of them needing, you know, financial support, Mm. many of them needing counseling services or little things like how to get a driver's license or how to get social security and you know that kind of I say little but this is really not little and so they come out they come out needing a lot and the biggest difference that I have have seen is is that education part so were they able to have access to courses while they were incarcerated were they able to have access to programs while they were incarcerated did they have access to people outside um and so that's what I do a lot in terms of like teaching I try to I try to be that bridge between you know people inside and and my students you know mm-hmm. so that they can they can have those interactions so that they can talk to students so they can have regular communication you know did people have access to to books you know we're talking about Soledad Brother or Blood of My Eye or Malcolm X or a lot of people that I, I work with, you know, um, just go to the Bible because that's the one book that is allowed oh, right. <laughs> in every facility. It's one book. <laughs> um and so, but it's still it's they're reading, right? They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're they're educating themselves. And so, so yeah, um, I don't know if I I fully answered that question because it's right. it's so complex depending on where you are and right. and when you yeah. come out and um you know what facility you were at but what I have seen across the board is just this it's a greater need for for education both inside um and for us to um, educate ourselves out here on you know What do our people need? What do our community members need? You know, when
0: they. Yeah. Yeah, And and I think that a lot of times that folks on the outside are not thinking about the folks on the inside. If you don't know Mm -hmm. someone that's on the inside, it's Mm -hmm. out of sight, out of mind. Right. Exactly. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I worked for several years with about 40 or 50 brothers at the Sussex Two state prison here in Mm -hmm. Virginia under the the umbrella of something called Rasta Tabernacle. It's Mm -hmm. something that they had developed inside of the state prison that allowed them to engage in a non-traditional religious practice where they could come together and learn and think, discuss, debate, And so uh, I started going there to be a part of their services, and I didn't understand in the beginning what I was walking into because I said, okay, Rasta Tabernacle, I I don't know how much I'm going to be able to engage. I'm I'm not a Rasta. Mm -hmm. I -hmm. expected to see brothers speaking in Patois, you know, (laughs) dialect, having Mm -hmm. locks, you know, but... In all actuality, it was a hodgepodge of men who were from multiple faiths, but this was an umbrella organization that allowed them to practice some semblance of African spirituality of their choice. A lot of them were 5%ers, right? And you know, Mm -hmm. during that time, the 5%ers was considered an STG or security threat gang or movement. And so uh, they would have to come under these umbrellas of other organizations, right? And let me tell you, those brothers were thinkers, and they were very disciplined. I mean, when I'd come in, I'd ask brothers to stand for an affirmation. They would repeat after me. We did this like clockwork all the time to the point where over time, the guards just stopped being in there because Mm -hmm. they just knew that everything was was going to be fine and uh and we really had a great time I would come in take a topic and then we'd go in you know I do a little bit of lecture some call and response uh opportunities for questions but they were really there to be fed and that's another thing also is the humility here you mm-hmm. have folks that are locked up I don't think anyone in the room was doing less than 10 years They were reading profusely. Some of them were in correspondence programming. You know, they could have gone toe to toe with anyone. Right. Mm, mm -hmm. But instead, they wanted to be poured into. It's almost like when I came, they were like, give us a lecture. We want to hear your Mm -hmm. thing. We want to hear what's Mm -hmm. going on from out there, from your perspective. And let me tell you, so talented. They created gifts for me so they would produce cards and they made mm-hmm. their own kind of lamination that was made out of like saran wrap i mean it was it's incredible mm-hmm. what they've done mm-hmm. i mean and and just so beautiful and i've kept all of that memorabilia over the years now once covid hit i wasn't able to get back in and then when i attempted to go back and restart some of the folks had been transferred to other facilities and the facilities mm-hmm. where the main group of folks were, you know, the warden wouldn't respond to my calls. I was trying to send books in when the 1619 project came out, I was attempting to ensure that they got copies of that because Nicole had uh, mm-hmm. agreed to send some copies and they wouldn't return my calls at all. They would not mm-hmm. receive the texts that were sent. And and that's where I really realized like some of these facilities are really not about helping folks to grow and improve. They don't want folks from the outside coming in and saying, you know, let me pour into you. Let me help Mm -hmm. to educate you. Let me help to strengthen you and encourage you, you know? And I looked at that. I Mm -hmm. said, wow, you know, some of the books were not received because they had staples. Well, I understand, Mm -hmm. but you know, Hey, we sent them back without staples. They're still not accepted. Because they don't fit the size of a letter, you know, they have to. So, mm-hmm. so many barriers to just getting brothers to be able to read and to grow. Mm-hmm. It really is a terrible situation in most places, you know.
1: Well, if you are educated, um, if you are someone who is educating or helping to educate people inside, or um, if you're someone trying to to build community with with people inside, that's frowned upon because. COs wouldn't have a job. A warden wouldn't have a job. You know, if, if people are are educated and and are able to to leave those facilities and you know they're able to help out in their community and support their community and all of this you know other stuff, then yeah, people would be without a job. You know, mm. <laughs> there wouldn't be this quote unquote recidivism. I could mm. I could go on and on about no, but it's a shame but, that it's even yeah.
0: that that's the reality, right? Yeah, because you're correct. But it's just a shame that, you know, and then you wonder why the views turn towards socialist, Marxist, Mm -hmm. communist views when they see themselves as being pawns in the hands of a capitalist system that, as Mm -hmm. Malcolm X said, was vulturistic. And fed upon Mm -hmm. its actors, you know, just how they got rid of the boxing programming and many of the prisons Mm -hmm. got rid Mm -hmm. of the weightlifting. uh, Because why do you want educated, smart, big, strong, you know, (laughs) folks in the prison system, right? They become hard Mm -hmm. to handle. But Mm -hmm. if you had the appropriate kinds of psychological training, so you, you could learn when you were being played Right. If they're because, Mm -hmm. hey, they're they're gamers in there. You know what I mean? There are folks in there running games. I mean, Mm -hmm. I went into uh, the prison one time. And a brother tried to slip me a note and say, "Hey, can you take this to somebody?" And I said, "Brother, we not no, we not doing that, you know." <laughs> but he tried with a smile, like, "Hey, hey, brother, uh-huh. can you go ahead?" And I said, "No, we 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 bring nothing out that we didn't come mm-hmm. in with. You understand yeah. what I'm saying? You know, I I don't want you loving my company that much that I'm in here with you, uh, you know. But that's the thing is that yeah, there are some slicksters." that are in the system, there are folks who definitely belong there, right? That does exist. There are folks who have put themselves in a situation where they need a timeout, but there are also some really great people who got caught up in some circumstances and situations that if they had a cousin who was a lawyer or they had access to finance or they had someone who could have given them better guidance, they would have never been in that situation. I think about Brother Browder, from mm, from New mm-hmm. York who goes to Rikers Island for the theft of a book bag that okay. he says he didn't do and mm-hmm. he sits for months awaiting mm-hmm. sentencing awaiting mm-hmm. trial and 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 you you know he couldn't have been guilty because he could have easily gotten out within a few months if he had just mm-hmm. copped and said yes I right. did but mm-hmm. he believed that the system would do him justice that if he He stood close to his principles that he would be okay. And what ended up happening? The brother went Mm -hmm. through pain and trauma so much so that he could not continue to take life on the outside. There needs to be some reform, period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I have had family members doing stints of time. I know brothers that are locked up that will never see the light of day without a miracle. Mm -hmm. And... Some of these people are the
1: most thoughtful, you know. Yeah, I've driven, you know, five hours and had a visit, you know, canceled, you know, as soon as I get there. You know, I've been sitting in the visiting room and I've seen I've seen wives and I've seen kids, you know, turned away. Mm. Um, So it's all, you know, it's all very arbitrary how they decide to punish, you know, Mm -hmm. even those of us who are, you know, on the outside. So, Mm.
0: yeah. That's heavy, what you just said, that we who are on the outside end up being punished (laughs) because we care about and love Mm -hmm. those who are on the inside. How dare you love Mm -hmm. them? Exactly. How dare you show concern? Mm -hmm. You know, as we're coming down, I want to talk about, Mm -hmm. you know, The Atlantic published this article on the brutal reality of life in America's most notorious jail. Rikers Island is a jail. Yeah, yeah but it is like a
1: prison. It operates like a prison. Mm -hmm. And
0: there's so many folks that we know who are are locked up there. What are your thoughts Mm -hmm. overall about what needs to change on the inside? You know, what what do we need to be thinking about here on the outside? What needs to be done? What can we do? You know, Mm -hmm. you're doing a work now and you're doing amazing work, working with folks that are on the inside and maybe we'll bring you back when you can have some of them right we, we can find a time they're, where they're they calling can... me now okay hey <laughs> hey listen i mean if you want to grab that you know <laughs> but um you know, we can definitely set up a part two yeah. and, and have them on to to share. You can you can put the, uh, you know, the phone up to the mic or we can yeah. try to they get them, that. you yeah. know, we can definitely do that and hear from them. But what are your thoughts? What do we need to walk away with from this conversation? We talked about education on the inside, how folks fought for education. We talked about the terrible conditions that are on the inside and some Mm. of the experiences we've had with folks. What are your thoughts when we have jails that are like prisons and this person says, I've been locked up in maximum security prisons for two decades and Mm. my time on Rikers Island was worse. Mm -hmm. What needs to be
1: done? I think, you know, at at a micro level, the people that I that I work with just want to be loved Mm. um and they want to they want to experience that of they want to be in in community with with people on the outside um and at a at a very very minute level um that's that's what they tell me they need the most Mm. um and every every conversation that we have um revolves around that and how I, you know, in some way and am, am filling that void for them um, by, you know, by taking their calls by by having, you know, conversations with them about about life and about family and, you know, about things that have changed, you know, since they were, you know, first incarcerated. Um, and so I think you know, walking away from this conversation, I think that I would want um, educators uh, primarily to to also um, be in, in communion and, and break bread with people inside, because there are some wonderful, amazing people who are doing um, extraordinary things with the little that yes. they have um, mm-hmm. inside, and um, I think that. We need to, um, you know, shift our focus and and look at them as as human beings first. Um, you talk about Rikers Island; a lot of those people are young young yes. people, you know, who are who could have been in my classroom. And so I think about that often. Like you know, as as a teacher, I even uh, you know to this day I communicate with some of my students who are incarcerated, you mm. know, right now. And so it's just. Yeah, walking away from this, like let's be in community. I think that's the the one thing that they need the most. And I think that they would tell you the same. They just mm-hmm. want, they want relationships. They wanna, they wanna chop it up and you know, talk about whatever. Um I I work with one individual who um he's been incarcerated for 34 years. Um and he asked me this question. Um what does it feel like to look up at the stars? Um, because he has not been able to see the stars in 34 years. And so I, I think about that question often. I, I try to place myself in his shoes. Um, you know, what would it feel like to not have that, to not have that freedom, to not be able to to look out my window or to, you know, uh, stand outside and, and see, you know, um, all of this beauty. Um, and yeah, so I, I think about that often and, um, in doing so, um, it pushes me to, to be in community even more so that I can describe that to them so that they can in some way experience it through my eyes. So Mm. that was a long answer.
0: (laughs) Yes, but Hey, yeah. (laughs) what I pulled from it is that they need. You know, as as LL said, I need love, right? We yeah, we need love yeah. as human beings. Um, mm-hmm. And sometimes just just the the ability to touch another person's mind, um, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, so it it's so important. Uh, you know, I, I thank you for being with us uh, today. Let's work on mm-hmm. getting some of those folks to hop on. Oh,
1: they
0: they definitely will. (laughs) And let's let's give uh, give them some time. Let's do a part two Mm -hmm. to this, where we can really show folks what is the imprisoned Black radical tradition, right, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and really delve more into Black critical theory with Mm -hmm. regard to that. Because when we talk about folks self-educating, folks changing their political theories, um you know re-examining life structures and systems I mean that right there is the core of you know an imprisoned black radical tradition and Mm uh you know and and we have to see like how was that developed people may not like it they may not Mm -hmm. like the 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 ends of the ideas that folks come to when they're incarcerated but I think Mm -hmm. it behooves us to understand it uh, we can't be afraid of of everything forever. Uh, sometimes, as Stephen Covey says, we must seek to first understand uh, before we look to be understood. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely want to have an opportunity for you to come back and uh, for us to provide space for some of those voices for our program. I think that would be fantastic.
1: Yeah, I would love that.
0: Okay, so we'll we'll work on that. Let's stay in touch. I'm going to let you first, though, have your winter break and get yourself, (laughs) you know, some rest and be able to because we're both ending out semesters now. Oh, yeah. uh, From some really challenging work and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and and it's not going to get any easier once we come back. So we need to Mm -hmm. ensure that we take some time for ourselves. I know I've got about two weeks that I'm taking to just, you know, me
1: too. (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, you know what I mean?
0: And yes. so uh, so it's so important. And look, Dr. McMillan, I really appreciate you and honor the connection that we've been able to have mm-hmm. with regard to your work and to the work that we are doing here at Leading by History. Thank you for, mm-hmm. you know, helping us to make season five engaging and successful for our audience mm-hmm. to, to think about these things. And from those of us at Leading by History, we say peace.
1: Thank you.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the Leading by History podcast. We enjoyed being with you today and we look forward to being with you again soon. Remember, never accept any information on face value alone, but always keep a leveled head and go and investigate the sources. Leading by History. Peace.